Section 2 of History of Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 13. The Military Despotism of Nicholas I. Part 2. 3. Military Martyrdom. The ways and means by which the provisions of the military statute were carried into effect during the reign of Nicholas I, we do not learn from official documents, which seem to have drawn a veil over this dismal strip of the past. Our information is derived from sources far more communicative and nearer to truth, the traditions current among the people. Owing to the fact that every Jewish community, at the mutual responsibility of all its members, was compelled by law to supply a definite number of recruits, and that no one was willing to become a soldier of his own volition, the Kahal administration and the recruiting trustees who had to answer to the authorities for any shortage in recruits were practically forced to become a sort of police agents whose function it was to capture the necessary quota of recruits. Prior to every military conscription, the victims marked for prey, the young men and boys of the burger class, very generally took to flight hiding in distant cities outside the zone of their cars or in forests and ravines. A popular song in Yiddish refers to these conditions in the following words. The Ukas is Arab Gekumen auf Yiddishe Zellner. Seinen mir sich zulaufen in die Puste Wälder. In alle Puste Wälder seinen mir zulaufen. In Puste Gruber seinen mir verlaufen. Oi wei, oi wei. When the UKs came down about Jewish soldiers, we all dispersed over the lonesome forest. Over the lonesome forest did we disperse. In lonesome pits did we hide ourselves. Woe me, woe. The recruiting agents hired by the Kahal or its trustees, who received the nickname hunters or captors, hunted down the fugitives trailing them everywhere and capturing them for the purpose of making up the shortage. In default of a sufficient number of adults, little children who were easier catch were seized, often enough in violation of the provision of law. Even boys under the required age of 12, sometimes no more than 8 years old, were caught and offered as conscripts at the recruiting stations their age being misstated. The agent perpetrated incredible cruelties. Houses were raided during the night, and children were torn from the arms of their mothers, were lured away and kidnapped. After being captured, the Jewish conscripts were sent into the recruiting jail, where they were kept in confinement until their examination at the recruiting station. The enlisted miners were turned over to a special officer 
to be dispatched to their places of destination, mostly in the eastern provinces, including Siberia. For it must be noted that the Cantonists were stationed almost to men in the outlying Russian governments where they could be brought up at a safe distance from all Jewish influences. The unfortunate victims who were drafted into the army and deported to these far-off regions were mourned by their relatives as dead. During the autumnal season, when the recruits were drafted and deported, the streets of the Jewish towns resounded with moans. The juvenile Cantonists were packed into wagons like so many ships and carried off in batches under a military convoy. When they took the leave of their dear ones, it was for a quarter of a century. In the case of children, it was for a longer term. Too often it was goodbye for life. How these unfortunate youngsters were driven to their places of destination, we learn from the description of Alexander Herzen, who chanced to meet a batch of Jewish cantonists on his involuntary journey through Vyatka in 1835. At one of the post stations in some God-forsaken village of the Vyatka government, he met the escorting officer. The following dialogue ensued between the two. Whom do you carry and to what place? Well, sir, you see, they got together a bunch of these accursed Jewish youngsters between the age of eight and nine. I suppose they are meant for the fleet, but how should I know? At first, the command was to drive them to Perm. Now there is a change. We are told to drive them to Kazan. I have had them on my hands for a hundred versts or thereabout. The officer that turned them over to me told me that they were an awful nuisance. A third of them remained on the road. At this, the officer pointed with his finger to the ground. Half of them will not get to their destination, he added. Epidemics, I suppose. I inquired, stirred to the very core. No, not exactly epidemics, but they just fall like flies. Well, you know, these Jewish boys are so punny and delicate. They can't stand mixing dirt for ten hours with dry biscuits to live on. Again, everywhere, strange folks, no father, no mother, no caress. Well then, you just hear a cough and the youngster is dead. Hello, corporal. Get out the small fry. The little ones were assembled and arrayed in a military line. It was one of the most terrible spectacles I have ever witnessed. Poor, poor children. The boys of 12 or 13 managed to somehow to stand up, but the little ones of 8 and 10, no brush, however black, could convey the terror of this scene on the canvas. Pale, worn out, with scared looks, this is the way they stood in their uncomfortable, rough soldier uniforms, with their starched, turned-up colors, fixing an inexpressibly helpless and pitiful gaze upon the garrison soldiers who were handling them rudely. White lips, blue lines under the eyes, betokened either fever or cold. And these poor children, without care, without caress, exposed to the wind which blows unhindered from the Arctic Ocean, 
were marching to their deaths. I seized the officer's hand and with the words, Take good care of them, threw myself into my carriage. I felt like sobbing and I knew I could not master myself. The great Russian writer saw the Jewish Cantonists on the road, but he knew nothing of what happened to them later on in the recesses of the barracks into which they were driven. This terrible secret was revealed to the world at a later period by the few survivors among these martyred Jewish children. Having arrived at their destination, the juvenile conscripts were put into the Cantonist battalions. The preparation for military service began with their religious re-education at the hands of sergeants and corporals. No means was neglected so long as it bade fair to bring the children to the baptismal font. The authorities refrained from giving formal instructions, leaving everything to the zeal of the officers who knew the wishes of their superiors. The children were first sent for spiritual admonition to the local Greek Orthodox priests, whose efforts, however, proved fruitless in nearly every case. They were then taken in hand by the surgeons and corporals who adopted military methods of persuasion. These brutal soldiers invented all kinds of tortures. A favorite procedure was to make the Cantonists get down on their knees in the evening after all had gone to bed and to keep the sleepy children in that position for hours. Those who agreed to be baptized were sent to bed. Those who refused were kept up the whole night till they dropped from exhaustion. The children who continued to hold their own were flogged and, under the guise of gymnastic exercises, subjected to all kinds of tortures. Those that refused to eat pork or the customary cabbage soup prepared with lard were beaten and left to starve. Others were fed on salted fish and then forbidden to drink until the little ones, tormented by thirst, agreed to embrace Christianity. The majority of these children unable to endure the tortures inflicted on them, saved themselves by baptism. But many Cantonists, particularly those of a mature age, between 15 and 18, bore their martyrdom with heroic patience. Beaten almost into senselessness, their bodies stripped by lashes, tormented to the point of exhaustion by hunger, thirst, and sleeplessness, the lads declared again and again, that they would not betray the faith of their fathers. Most of these obstinate youths were carried from the barracks into the military hospitals to be released by a kind death. Only a few remained alive. Alongside of this passive heroism, there were cases of demonstrative martyrdom. One such incident has survived in the popular memory. The story goes that during a military parade, in the city of Kazan, the battalion chief drew up all the Jewish Cantonists on the banks of the river, where the Greek Orthodox priests were standing in their vestment, and all was ready for the baptismal ceremony. At the command to jump into the water, the boys answered in military fashion, I, I, whereupon they dived under and disappeared. When they were dragged out, they were dead.
In most cases, however, these little martyrs suffered and died noiselessly in the gloom of the guardhouses, barracks, and military hospitals. They strewed with their tiny bodies the road that led into the outlying regions of the empire, and those that managed to get there were fading away slowly in the barracks, which had been turned into inquisitorial dungeons. This martyrdom of children, set in a military environment, represents a singular phenomenon even in the extensive annals of Jewish martyrology. Such was the lot of the juvenile Cantonists. As for the adult recruits who were drafted into the army at the normal age of conscription, 18 to 25, their conversion to Christianity was not pursued by the same direct methods, but their fate was not a whit less tragic from the moments of their capture till the end of their grievous 25-year service. Youth who had no knowledge of the Russian language were torn away from the heather or yeshiva, often from wife and children. In consequence of the early marriages then in vogue, most youth at the age of 18 were married. The impending separation for a quarter of a century added to the danger of the soldier's apostasy or death in far-off regions, often disrupted their family ties. Many recruits, before entering upon their military career, gave their wives a divorce so as not to doom them to perpetual widowhood. At the end of 1834, rumors began to spread among the Jewish masses concerning a law which was about to be issued, forbidding early marriages but exempting from conscription those married prior to the promulgation of the law. A panic ensued. Everywhere, feverish haste was displayed in marrying off boys from 10 to 15 years old to girls of an equally tender age. Within a few months, there appeared in every city hundreds and thousands of such couples whose marital relations were often confined to playing with nuts or bones. The misunderstanding which had caused this senseless matrimonial panic or beholo, as it was afterwards popularly called, was cleared up by the publication on April 13, 1835, of the new statute on the Jews. To be sure, the new law contained a clause forbidding marriage before the age of 18, but it offered no privileges for those already married, so that the only result of the Beholo was to increase the number of families robbed by the conscription of their heads and supporters. The years of military service were spent by the grown-up Jewish soldiers amidst extraordinary hardships. They were beaten and ridiculed because of their inability to express themselves in Russian, their refusal to eat trefa, and their general lack of adaptation to their strange environment and to the military mode of life. And even when this process of adaptation was finally accomplished, the Jewish soldier was never promoted beyond the position of a non-commissioned under-officer, baptism being the inevitable stepping stone to a higher rank. True, the statute on military service promised those Jewish soldiers who had completed their term in the army with distinction admission to the civil service, 
but the promise remained on paper so long as the candidates were loyal to Judaism. On the contrary, the Jews who had completed their military service and had in most cases become invalids were not even allowed to spend the rest of their lives in the localities outside the Pale, in which they had been stationed as soldiers. Only at a later period, during the reign of Alexander II, was this right accorded to the Nicholas soldiers and their descendants. The full weight of conscription fell upon the poorest classes of the Jewish population, the so-called burger estate, consisting of petty artisans and those impoverished tradesmen who could not afford to enroll in the mercantile guilds, those there are cases on record where poor Jews begged from door to door to collect a sufficient sum of money for a guild certificate in order to save their children from military service. The more or less well-to-do were exempted from conscription either by virtue of their mercantile status or because of their connections with the Kahal leaders who had the power of selecting the victims. 4. The Policy of Expulsions In all lands of Western Europe, the introduction of personal military service for the Jews was either accompanied or preceded by their emancipation. At all events, it was followed by some mitigation of their disabilities, serving, so to speak, as an earnest of the grant of equal rights. Even in clerical Austria, the imposition of military duty upon the Jews was preceded by the tolerance patent. This would be act of emancipation. In Russia, the very reverse took place. The introduction of military conscription of a most aggravating kind and the unspeakable cruelties attending its practical execution were followed, in the case of the Jews, by an unprecedented recrudescence of legislative discrimination and the monstrous increase of their disabilities. The Jews were lashed with the double knout, a military and a civil. In the same ill-fated year which saw the promulgation of the conscription statute, barely three months after it had received the imperial sanction, while the moans of the Jews, fasting and praying to God to deliver them from the calamity, were still echoing in the synagogues, two new ukases were issued, both signed on December 2, 1827, they one decreeing the transfer of the Jews from all villages and village inns in the government of Grodno into the towns and townlets, the other ordering the banishment of all Jewish residents from the city of Kiev. The expulsion from the Grodno villages was the continuation of the policy of the rural liquidation of Jewry, inaugurated in 1823 in White Russia. The Grodno province was merely meant to serve as a starting point. Grand Duke Constantine, who had brought up the question, was ordered at first to carry out the expulsion in the government of Grodno alone and to postpone, for a later occasion, the application of the same measure to the other governments entrusted to his command. Simultaneously, Considerable foresight was displayed in instructing the Grand Duke 
to wait with the expulsion of the Jews until the conclusion of the military conscription going on at present. Evidently, there was some fear of disorders and complications. It was thought wiser to seize the children for the army first and then to expel the parents, to get hold of the young birds, than to destroy the nest. The expulsion from Kiev was of a different order. It marked the beginning of a new system, the narrowing down of the urban area allotted to the Jews within the Pale of Settlement. Since 1794, the Jews had been allowed to settle in Kiev freely. They had formed there with official sanction an important community and had vastly developed commerce and industry. Suddenly, however, the government discovered that their presence is detrimental to the industry of this city and to the exchequer in general, and is moreover at variance with the rights and privileges conferred at different periods upon the city of Kiev. The discovery was followed by a grim rescript from St. Petersburg, forbidding not only the further settlement of Jews in Kiev, but also prescribing that even those settled there long ago should leave the city within one year, those owning immovable property within two years. Henceforward, only the temporary sojourn of Jews for a period of not exceeding six months was to be permitted and to be limited, moreover, to merchants of the first two guilds who arrive in connection with contracts and fairs or to attend to public bids and deliveries. In 1829, the whip of expulsion cracked over the backs of the Jews dwelling on the shores of the Baltic and the Black Sea. In Courland and Livonia, measures were taken looking to the reduction of the number of Jews, which had been considerably swelled by the influx of newcomers, of Jews not born in those provinces and therefore having no right to settle there. The Tsar endorsed the proposal of the Jewish committee to transfer from Courland all Jews not born there into the cities in which their birth was registered. Those not yet registered in a municipality outside the province were granted a half-year's respite for that purpose. If within the prescribed term they failed to attend to their registration, they were to be sent to the army or in case of unfitness for military service, deported to Siberia. In the same year, an imperial ukase declared that the residence of civilian Jews in the cities of Sevastopol and Nikolaev was inconvenient and injurious in view of the military and naval importance of these places and therefore decreed the expulsion of their Jewish residents, those owning real property within two years, the others within one year. By a new ukase issued in 1830, the Jews were expelled from the villages and hamlets of the government of Kiev. Thus were human beings hurled about from village to town, from city to city, from province to province, with no more concern than might be displayed in the transportation of cattle. This process of mobilization had reached its climax when the Polish insurrection of 1830 to 1831 broke out, affecting the whole western region.
Fearing lest the persecuted Jews might be driven into the arms of the Poles, the government decided on a strategic retreat. In February 1831, in consequence of the representations of the local military commander who urged the government to take into consideration the present political circumstances in which they, the Jews, may occasionally prove useful, the final expulsion of the Jews from Kiev was postponed for three years. At the end of the three years, the governor of Kiev made similar representations to St. Petersburg, emphasizing the desirability of allowing the Jews to remain in the city, even though it might become necessary to segregate them in a special quarter, this, i.e., their remaining in the city, being found useful also in this respect that, on account of their temperate and simple habits of life, they are in a position to sell their goods considerably cheaper, whereas in the case of their expulsion, many articles and manufactures will rise in price. Nicholas I rejected this plea and only agreed to postpone the expulsion until February 1835 for the reason that the new statute concerning the Jews then in preparation, which was to define the general legal status of Russian Jewry, was expected to be ready by that time. Similar short reprieves were granted to the Jews about to be exiled from Nikolaev, from the villages of the government of Kiev, and from other places. End of section 2